M, and happy Friday, Jenko. What's up, Carlo? How are you? Good, man. I'm glad it's Friday. Beautiful day here in East Texas. Say that every Friday. Because I'm happy it's Friday. (laughs) I want to hear you happy every day. (laughs) Okay, I'll work on it, Jenko. I'll do better. (laughs) Hey, Melissa Mimosa, Golden, Ellie. A lot of cool, a lot of friends. Yes. Our, our guest is on a little bit of a short timeline here. So with your permission, Jenko, I'm going to jump into Let's our go. intro and then start the conversation. And others will join, I'm sure. Absolutely. Welcome, everyone, to Lex Line, brought to you with our friends at Rug Radio, featuring yours truly, Carlo and Jenko, where we talk about new and emerging legal developments in Web3 blockchain and crypto law. Nothing we talk about should be considered legal or financial advice. If you have a specific legal question, consult a lawyer and do it privately, not on a recorded Twitter space because we record these spaces. You're on notice we record these spaces. If you come up and talk, just understand we're going to rebroadcast this stuff. So without further ado, the topic for today is blockchains and patents. We have Michael Castan, who is with us. Michael is a professor at NYU Law. He teaches in the areas of IP, blockchain, and tech law. Very, very delighted to have you up here, Michael. I would love if you could start the conversation with just a very brief intro and then how you see patents impacting blockchain. I will add this is a very timely conversation because we just had an examiner up this week as a guest talking about examining patent applications. And examiner Mo is in the house as well. So you two need to connect. So thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Um, I, I do teach at NYU, although uh, that does not pay the bills, although I love doing it. So my, my day job, I'm an IP lawyer. I work at Wigan and Dana. Uh, it's like a medium-sized law firm. I'm based in New York. Uh, and I've always done, I've always practiced in the IP area. Uh, started off doing a lot of patent infringement litigation and then expanded into licensing. And now I'm kind of a full-service IP lawyer. So uh, advising... Uh, especially focused on emerging companies and advising startups on obtaining patent protection and trademark and copyright protection. Uh, And then I started our uh, blockchain and digital assets group about a year ago, Uh, actually came to that work through some patent clients uh, who really turned me on to some of the uh, exciting use cases and innovations they were doing. Um, And uh, it's been a lot of fun. So I, I have been doing a lot of work in Web3, a lot of talking about IP and just Yesterday, yep, that was yesterday. Um, it was a long morning this morning. Uh, I was uh, I was on the U.S. Patent Office had a roundtable where they invited comments. It's a joint effort with the Patent Office and the Copyright Office and the Trademark Office to uh, kind of educate themselves about the NFT space and its potential impact on IP. And there were a lot of uh, a lot of practitioners and some business owners and and, and innovators on that. Uh, so that was kind of interesting to be uh, take take part in. Uh, submit some comments, and that's a little bit about my background. Um, you want me to talk a little bit about patents in this space? And I did, uh, I did listen to uh, to a bunch of your episode with Examiner Mo, which I thought was was great and really interesting. And look forward to connecting uh, with him further because I thought he had a lot of a lot of good comments. Yeah, I would love for you to break down how you see patents developing because Mo told us there are only a handful of patent applications out there right now. Uh, I think in the hundreds. And relatively speaking, compared to the amazing innovations that are happening on the blockchain, that's a relatively small part. Mm. Uh, Software can be patented. Blockchain is innovating 
in the application and delivery of services via blockchain technology. So I'd love if you could break down for the audience, including some of the lawyers in the house, how you see this being a emerging growth sector when it comes to blockchain tech and it's, it's merging with legal services. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think patents, look, when you talk about IP and the Web3 space, uh, you know, patents isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, a lot of people talking about brand and trademark and a lot of people talking about copyrights and copyrights on images and pictures and licensing things. And, you know, and, and, and I agree that's an interesting area. You know, patents are, uh, you know, more expensive to obtain. And, you know, even though now I think we're at a place where everyone recognizes that there's a lot of innovation and invention wrapped into software implemented inventions, it took kind of the courts and the patent office a little while to get there. So when people think about software, you know, patents aren't always the first thing you think of. But I think, you know, if folks are innovating um, and, you know, creating new inventions, you know, certainly the fact that it's implemented in software or, the, or that it uses, you know, blockchain shouldn't be an impediment. And I've, you know, I'm working with some pretty interesting clients, uh, you know, pursuing patentable inventions uh, that I think are really innovative, you know, in the space. So I, I think in terms of the numbers, look, I mean, uh, reading the tea leaves, I think part of it is kind of, a little bit of ethos. Um, I think, you know, there is a bit of a tension in terms of philosophy, uh, you know, be between kind of open sourcing things and decentralizing things and not controlling things and kind of, you know, the, the philosophy of giving someone exclusive rights in, exclose, in, in exchange for, you know, disclosing their invention. Um, but I think, you know, in the business world, I mean, certainly it makes sense if you're innovating um, you know, I think, and, and you have something patentable. I mean, it is the, the strongest IP, right? Um, and, you know, you can choose what you do with it once you have it, right? You can license it in all sorts of creative ways. Uh, there are lots of different ways to go about doing it. Um, so, so I think, you know, patents, but I think patents in this space, I think as we're seeing, there's some patents that people are looking at and saying, like, huh, like, is this, is this really, you know, can someone really own this? Um, and I think that's just indicative of this being an emerging space um, and the need for kind of education, you know, and resources to examiners and, and, you know, prior art being out there so people can, you know, make good decisions about what is, uh, you know, meriting a, a patent and what's not. Because I think you want to be in a place where you're rewarding, you know, people really are innovating and creating novel and non-obvious stuff, you know, that, you know, you want to give them those rights, but then, you know, you do from time to time um, have these issues of quote unquote bad patents, right? Patents that look super broad or look like they're just doing something that was really well known. Um, and, you know, the, of course, those can be later invalidated. But, you know, there are costs and frictions that are associated with those patents getting out into the world. So, you know, it's a balancing act and it's, it's a tough thing to do. But especially in emerging spaces like this one, um, at the beginning points, you know, there, there's a little bit of a push pull there. I love it. We would not be here with you today if it wasn't for Nir bringing us together. So I, I would love to, Jenko, pass it on to Nir and open the conversation about how you and Nir both see this technology impacting uh, the patent filing world. And of course, Mo, you are welcome to chime in as well, being that you are an examiner. And we did break down the Unstoppable Domain application, which was recently granted, which might be one of those one-offs where it was a very basic, straightforward application that got approved. We broke that down for those who want to listen back to that. But Nir, thank you and welcome to LexLine as always. We love having you here. Thank you so, so much for having me, Carlo Ray. You guys always put on a really 
amazing, informative show. I, I love the guests that you guys have and appreciate the opportunity to partner with you on this one uh, and have uh, Michael join us and share with his really great knowledge in this space. And um, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> I think we're also so blessed to have Examiner Mo here. Um, great episode with him, by the way. Um, but I, I'd love to, for Michael and obviously Examiner Mel, please chime in too, um, to chat a little bit more about what is open source, excuse me, open source technology. I think that's where, you know, a lot of people are kind of scratching their head and how that fits into, um, you know, this the patent rights exclusivity uh, that you're getting and and whether or not you can patent things um, on top of open source technology. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that and then maybe we can focus on um, invalidation, what is a re-examination, things like that. So let me, let me touch on this first because as an examiner, I don't give any thought to whether it's open source or not. Um, I don't know if that is something that we should be thinking about. I just know that that's not something that we are trained to do. Um, we are looking for the information as it exists prior to your filing date. So whether that information is public, actually the information has to be public to the, uh, for us to even be able to use it. So it has to be at least open. Right. We can't use like, like say you had an internal document that was from your company, but it wasn't widely distributed and it was only distributed to the employees, that would not be considered prior art to right. use an examination, right? It has to be something that is publicly disclosed. So that's a great question, Michael. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the, the open source issue is really interesting. I think because a lot of people, I think, you know, open source came into vogue, you know, more through the copyright door, right? Like you might, you know, open source, we think about open source software. Uh, and of course, there's things that you implement in software, um, you know, that, that certainly could be patentable. So it's one of these things where two different categories of IP can apply to the same thing. Um, so if, if, but if, you know, if you're developing software under an open source license, um, you know, that, that gives you, you know, certain rights to reuse it. Um, a lot of times it really depends on, a lot of times those licenses don't say anything about, you know, granting you rights to any patents. So it's fully possible that there could be a piece of open source software uh, where, where you get, you know, the open source, you get the ability to use it in terms of copyright, um, but then there might be some patents that, that, that are there. I think that, you know, philosophically, uh, it's a little bit inconsistent with saying like, you know, we're going to allow people to use this software, but now we're going to patent it. And, and, you know, I think the licenses like should be clear, but it's certainly possible and, and that's, you know, to the extent that, that, that that's the same party who's giving you the open source copyright license has a patent. But there's certainly other scenarios where, you know, some other people could have a patent on aspects of that. Um, I don't think it's necessarily inconsistent that, you know, you could have open source stuff um, or innovations that becomes, you know, subject to sort of patent protections. So, Michael, let me, uh, if I could ask a follow up question. So about 10 years ago, we had that Alice case and it kind of uh, sorry, not, not not the Alice case. I'm sorry. I'm talking about the uh, the AIA uh, pre AIA change, right? Where it was first to invent, and uh, that was basically you know you had to prove that you were the first person to think of it, and then that kind of got a little hairy, so we went to first to uh, file, right? But I want to I want to note that when you file a patent application, you are also filing uh, or turning in you know an oath or declaration that you are the inventor on this, so. 
you know, there could be a situation where something is open source. No one has filed the application for it. That information is totally new. I can see where someone would, you know, just take that information and go file an application on it. Right. But again, it would be hairy because you're filing on an oath or a declaration saying that, like, you did invent this. So you'd be technically lying. Right? Mo, that's a great question. I love it. I want to I want to hear and learn from this one. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And yes, so, so the law did change. It used to be first to invent in the U.S. and to harmonize with the rest of the world. Back in, I think, 2012, 2013, we became first to file. And, and certainly, yeah, you do. You do. When, when you file a patent application as the applicant, you know, you, you do file an oath that says, hey, I invented this. So if you were to just take something that's open source, that's just someone else's and file it as your own. Um, I agree. That's that's, you know, fraud on the patent office, basically, and inequitable conduct. And if you ever tried to enforce your patent down the road, you'd have, uh, you know, pretty big problem. Um, but I mean, if there, you know, I, I could see a scenario where something started off open source and you had an open source license to use it. And then, you know, you did a bunch of inventions on the top of it and your patent is a combination of maybe like an open source element A and some other stuff that you invented where you did invent something, not the baseline thing, but something else uh, where, you know, you wouldn't be committing fraud. You're just saying, hey, I have this invention. It may use like one component that's open source, but I did a bunch of other inventive stuff and the combination is patentable. So, you know, I, I could see that. And I want to note that at the patent office, we don't have checks and balances to to disprove your statements right if you file a declaration or yeah. you file an oath like we take that as face value and that's why i think they pay the lawyers the big bucks because <laughs> like that's out of our hands right we take what applicant says as the truth and we don't there is no mechanism in play for us to validate you know these declarations yeah i mean that's a really good point you know like the the patent process is in fancy latin words an ex parte process Right. It's just the applicant and the patent office. And it's there's no third party out there. There's no I mean, sometimes people can later like, you know, file a reexamination or submit prior art. But generally speaking, it's just the applicant talking to the or the applicant's lawyer, you know, back and forth with the examiner. So so I think that's interesting. And it kind of gets into what Nir was saying about talking about validity, because uh, patents are kind of a strange asset class. Right. Like they go through examination. You file an application. You go through a back and forth with the examiner and, you know, you might get an issued patent um, and then, you know, you go to sue someone on that patent or license that patent. Um, and that person has a big financial interest in fighting and they may come up with prior art or arguments about the validity. They can go back to the patent office in a reexamination or inter, inter parties review and try and invalidate it. Um, and, th and those were kind of streamlined procedures that were added. Um, in, in at the same time uh, in that AIA set of laws, because I think there was a recognition that that, that you needed a, like a, a fast procedure, a fast, relatively inexpensive and relatively inexpensive uh, procedure to invalidate patents that, you know, maybe shouldn't have issued. And, you know, at, at the, and, then, and then you can also invalidate them, you know, in court. So it's this asset where the government grants it. But then, you know, there are multiple times where you can try and invalidate it. Of course, that of course, that's expensive and it's risky and it's hard. Um, but, you know, it's interesting when you just think about it, because at the initial point, um, when you're getting the application, you have patent examiners who get lots of applications in and they're, you know, they're going one on one with the applicant and they're kind of taking it at face value and they're doing the best search that they can. 
Um, but then, you know, down the road, when someone's suing you on that patent or trying to license that patent to you for a lot of money or trying to use that patent to shut you down, uh, you know, you, that party on the other side of that is investing a lot more resources and money uh, trying to find ways to invalidate that patent. So um, it's just interesting. And, you know, there's a difference between the patents that issue and a patent that ultimately, you know, survives an invalidity challenge. You know, of course, it's not a great, it's not, you don't want a system, you want, you want a system where you, you know, issue patents that should be issued and because it's, of course, costly. And, you know, when someone has a patent that people think is overbroad, you know, it can kind of chill the space. Um, but, you know, there are multiple opportunities to invalidate these patents. And that does happen just because of the resources and kind of the, the way folks are oriented. Wonderful. Gary Palmer, we brought you up. You are a ENS delegate, very active in the space. Do you have a question when it comes to blockchains and patents? We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us on LexLine. Hey, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having this conversation. Uh, thank you, everyone in the room listening, paying attention. You know, definitely follow these people who are having these conversations, especially in the bear market, uh, because the charlatans will be here once the bull market comes back. So now's the time to be paying attention. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a ton of questions that I that I have in general. There's a ton of questions that I have about this. I, I guess the most immediate uh, sort of question that I have is. Inside this space, we have, we're talking about ENS, and uh, ENS is a protocol. It's an open, you know, open protocol, um, and uh, there's a lot of people who are involved uh, with ENS. It's not, you know, just one company anymore. It's right. on the work of a lot of people, including most notably Nick Johnson, Nick.eth, ENS Labs. Um, but then there's other people, too, in the community who are who are building. There's aspects of CCIP. There's um, uh, e, uh, ETH.limo, ETH.limo, which is, you know, used as like a. And so when we add all these different works from all the individual people, um, it equals basically the, the pet. I'm you know, not, not a lawyer. Um, I don't play one on TV. Uh, but, if hypothetically, it yeah, equals. exactly. Hi, hi, Welcome, hi. Gary. <laughs> thanks for accepting the invite. <laughs> thanks. Uh, uh, thanks for not hiring me as a as a lawyer, uh, TV actor. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so when when I add up when you know when I read the patent and the claims and I add up all the not just what Nick did but all the different people like Ethat Limo and ENS Vision, um, all these people together equals the patent. And so I'm just wondering how does that affect things. Um, because when, you know, like say hypothetically, if one person was going to fight it and then you can, and then it was hearing you say that that doesn't equal the whole, because they could add something new and then say it's a new thing. But what if it's not really new and they just like, uh, Frankenstein everything into the one thing? <laughs> yeah. So are you talking about the, are you talking about the unstoppable domains patent or just in general? Uh, I might hypothetically be talking about that. <laughs> I will also hypothetically. It's whatever you can that. talk about, Michael. Yeah. So, so. It's it's a great question, and um, I, I haven't looked at that you know patent in great detail. Detail. I did look at the claims, um, and you know I'd want to read it more fully, and even then might not want to be in a recorded space opining on that specific <laughs> one. But um, you know the claims look pretty broad, and 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 look sometimes you see patents and they're really narrow. Um, sometimes you see patents and you're like, wow, that's really broad. Uh, I could see that that just and, and and there have been a couple instances. It's not the first time where I've seen claims in this space where I'm like, huh, this just kind of seems to read on 
doing something like using basic blockchain functionality or this is sort of claiming like doing a, a fidgetal thing like and is that really you know novel so so i think you know your question about you know frankensteining different things together and if not any one person did it you know the analysis that the patent office will do um, based on their search and the and the arguments that later people might make to invalidate it um there 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 are a couple different bases and in terms of validity um there's kind of two different prior art ways to invalidate a patent. One is novelty. Um, so, so inventions have to be novel. And what novel means is it's got to be new, meaning no one person, no one piece of prior art, like did all the things in the claim. So if the claim is like A, B, C, D, uh, if you find a piece of prior art, like a, another published patent or a paper uh, or a product that did A, B, C, and D, you know, the, you say, okay, this is not novel. It's not, not, owed patent protection more commonly uh and i you know as you, you see that I've, I've had clients like say hey i have this invention and you do a search and the exact thing they invented has been done by someone else and you're like oh, okay don't you know can't, can't go forward there uh, more commonly um it is a combination of different stuff right that's how kind of innovation happens and the legal question which is you know a little bit more subjective a little bit more difficult to apply is you know, to the extent that no one person did it, if, you know, two different people did it, if you have two, two different pieces of prior art, you know, would someone who's, you know, of ordinary skill in the art in this field at the time of the patent um, think it's obvious to combine the two things? Or is the invention that combines those things, you know, non-obvious because, you know, of, of some, some, some other factor? Um, so to, to get an issued patent, it's got to be both novel and non-obvious. So a lot of times, um, patents can be invalidated by saying, look, a bunch of people did this in the prior art and it would have been obvious to combine all these things together. So I want to touch on that um, because you're, you're, you're definitely right. There's two types of rejections. Well, actually, there's, there's many types of rejections you can sure. get in the patent office, but uh, prior art rejections, uh, there are two types, right? There's the anticipatory style where it's just like Michael said, you find a piece of prior art that has A, B, and C that's in your claims. You say it has A, B, and C. You send it out and say, look, it's anticipated by this reference. No explanations needed. Just map it out. The other option is you find A and B and C somewhere else, and this put together, but you don't find D. And then you go look for D, and you you, uh, you find it. And it says, you know, it'd be obvious to use it in the same way the applicant is intending to use it. And you would do something called an obviousness, you know, type rejection. The issue with the obvious type rejection is it has to be obvious to one of ordinary skill in the art. Who is one of ordinary skill in the art? Is it a patent examiner who's been there for two months, <laughs> right? Is it is it uh, someone who's been there eight years? Is it someone who just opened it, who's been there for 12 years, but hasn't seen a blockchain case? Or yep. is it us DJs on Twitter, right? Is it the judge who doesn't know anything about this? So, I mean, uh, one of ordinary school in the art is someone who works at the patent office. That's basically where we're at with that. And uh, if it's okay, another thing is you can't just pull a reason to combine the two out of nowhere, right? Uh, there was a huge time at the patent office where people would just kind of say, oh, it's obvious to add these two things together because, you know, if you disclose it and I read it, it kind of looks obvious, you know, in hindsight. But they kind of, you know, took back on that and they said, you know, there's no hindsight reasoning. And now we're trying to, like, find, uh, you know, the stuff in the applications a lot more and the reasons uh, in the application a lot more. So just want to well, touch those on. are incredible points. They, like, 
very astute, high-level points. You, uh, Mo knows, like the saying goes. <laughs> Absolutely. Michael, anything to touch on that? And then I did want to um, – we had another practitioner here. Um, we have I Ebong uh, brought up. Yes. Ebong's still in the – I'm scrolling through. Oh, yeah, yeah as a speaker. Awesome. Well, welcome. 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 Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, wait, let me – oh, gosh, my Twitter's – messing up here no we can hear you go ahead <laughs> okay. welcome ellie already prefaced it with that this is your first twitter spaces so there's no pressure nice. just you know stand and deliver the patent breakdown on all the issues <laughs> thank you um i i i agree with what everyone said so far it's with respect to the novelty and um obviousness and i just wanted to touch on the person of ordinary skill in the art uh, it it actually d- differs based on if it's in the patent office or if it's during litigation, because I think that's because during litigation is where um, the parties will actually uh, come together to define it. And then the judge will agree to um, to what the person of or person of ordinary skill in the art uh, would be. And of course, you need experts to uh, experts on both sides who will argue. Uh, base, basically, one side will go, "Well, it the, well the standard should be lower," and the other side would will usually agree that the standard should be much higher. If you're um, doing a uh, a non obvious analysis, so that's so interesting, though. So you would use you would bring in experts to then determine what yep. an ordinary skill in the art would be. Yeah, it's usually in a litigation. It's usually they're experts on both sides of that issue. But I just wanted to touch on one issue that, that you said, Mo, um, which is I think the practical issue that, and, and it's something I, I sort of touched on in my comments to the USPTO uh, that I think I pinned somewhere. I, th- I think they're pinned here. Um, but uh, you know, it, it is you know practically speaking, the examiner is the person um, you know that's looking at this stuff. And you know, I think there's a big difference in how you come out if. You are educated on, you know, really, really technically know the, know the background of blockchain and, and what's, what is a common component of how it works and how long that's been around. Um, and, or if you've been there for two months and had this application thrown at your desk and, and you're just did a search and you're kind of doing your best. I think practically speaking, yeah, the law has this fictional person, this person of ordinary skill in the art. Uh, but practically speaking, for an examiner, I think it, it points to the fact that if we care about patent quality, especially in emerging technologies like this, uh, we have to do a good job kind of educating folks on what the prior art is, like what is just regular plain old fashioned blockchain functionality, what standards that people can discern when something is new and non-obvious. Um, because without that training, um, I think it's, it's really hard. And I think you do get situations uh, where things come through and you're, and then people in the field are like, wait a minute, like people, you know, people are doing that five years ago, but that might not be, visible to examiners you might not have publications in the prior art and you may not have folks that are you know steeped enough in these new technologies to know that and we need to buffer the, the search times right the, the uspto needs to buffer the search times for these new emerging technologies to give the examiner uh just more time to search and kind of direct them on these things but the, the patent office can't be everywhere at all times and it doesn't know what other people are going to file so i mean i understand how we got into this situation but um, there's definitely ways that we can try to 
do better. Mo, do you see education being something that's important from the examiner's side of the submission process? Because we talked about it this week when we had you on the show, that Unstoppable may have been a product of just a lack of understanding of blockchain technology and looking at something that we in the community may look at as more straightforward as being more a, of, a, of a technological innovation from the examiner's perspective. Do you see that something being that needs to be sort of buttressed or reinforced in your office? Yeah, I mean, look, to, to the examiner's uh, credit, right, we, we have a limited amount of time to do a limited search or, you know, the most extensive search that we can. There's so much information out there. Every day there's more information out there. Um, you know, this person probably... I mean, I don't know. I don't want to speak too much on, you know, what happened in this particular case. It's just it seems as if, you know, from the outside looking in that from from the changes from the published PG pub to the changes in the published, you know, patent, the amendments that were put in from the originally filed claims to the allowed claims really only introduced, you know, blockchain uh, terminology, you know, like automating it and making sure that it's on the ledger. And it just seemed like from the on its face those changes that were made from the published pg pub to the published patent just just didn't seem from an outsider who's not looking at this case you know that that different you know but again i I want to kick it to mike now because mike that opens up the conversation for your side as an attorney who submits we see in a lot of court filings when it comes to blockchain technology and in a lot of court rulings that there's an exhaustive explanation of the technology that is front-loaded in these filings. Is that something that from the application standpoint maybe needs to also be looked at to educate the examiners? Yeah, you know, I mean, there, there is a duty of disclosure. Um, and I think, you know, and look, I, I primarily litigate and license. Uh, I supervise prosecution. I'm not the person drafting applications. But, you know, I have noticed that, you know, in, in prosecution, where you're going back, uh, back and forth with the patent office, um, you know, there's an incentive to say the least that you need to say <laughs> to get the patent, you know, that, that consistent with, of course, like your duties of disclosure and your and, and you know, the oaths that, that they were talking about. Because when you do say things, you know, later on in litigation, they could be interpreted as narrowing. Um, so but, you know, and in litigation, right, you have this public record of the prosecution, the back and forth. Uh, you know, if you started off with an application and really broad claims, and then the, the office said, oh, no, 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 this is very narrow, um, and you, you narrow it, and then you try and sort of read it a different way when you're asserting it, you know, that, that that's really important. Um, I, I guess the one thing I wanted to say, and unfortunately, I do have to leave soon, but, you know, I, I, do, I did want to mention that, you know, in an ideal world, you know, we always want to get it perfectly right, and you want every patent that issues to be meritorious and of the right scope. Um, and, you know, never be able to be invalidated later because you've just nailed it. You've only awarded patents to, you know, new inventions and you don't have these quote unquote bad patents. Um, so that issue of patent quality, you know, we don't live in that ideal. And I think I, I think that sometimes you do get patents and, and I've you know, I, this patent was one I, I looked at, like I said, briefly and haven't studied. But, you know, it did it did make me go. hmm. And there are other patents in this space where I look at them and I'm like, wow, that's. That seems to basically say, do this very broad, well-known thing, but with basic blockchain in it. And, and so I, and, and that's, it's, that's not only in this space, but in many other technology spaces. Not, it's not just in blockchain. You get these patents that seem like, how did this issue? It's very broad. And it, it is interesting. You know, it has become harder to 
enforce patents, to get people to pay license fees, to resolve litigations, because I think people now know they can go back to the patent office, they can file an inter-parties review and try and invalidate it. And so a lot of times patents have to sort of survive this like second scrutiny, this second look, um, in order to really be monetized or for people to really respect them. And so, you know, right now, you know, there are players, you know, for example, if you have a whole group that, that says, hey, this patent is really broad and it, it, it's, it's claiming kind of the way everyone does business, there's a whole bunch of folks that could come together and say, file an IPR and try and invalidate it. They all have a common interest. And in fact, there are companies, there's a company called Unified Patents, that's one of them, uh, that sort of file IPRs for industry groups on patents they think are overly broad. Um, so so that is, a, you know, it's, it's more expensive, of course, to do that down the road. But to the extent that there are a lot of folks that are affected by something they think is overly broad and that it's really just claiming this old thing, you know, there are opportunities like that to to try and you know get those patents invalidated. Thank you, Mike. I know you have a hard stop coming up, so I'd love to give you the last uh, the last moment to sort of voice your thoughts in closing before you have to drop on the future of all of this. Where do you see it going? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think as in any emerging technology, uh, I think hopefully over time, you know, as as the prior art builds up. Um, and as I think the patent office gets more sophisticated in dealing with technology, uh, you know, you hope to see, you know, patents issue that are of the right scope where you're you know, rewarding, you know, folks that are doing innovative work and, you know, not granting things that are that are kind of overbroad. That's always the push pull in any space. Um, so I think patents are, you know, have a role to play in blockchain, just as any other sort of software based, you know, sort of technology. Um, so that's kind of where I see it going short version. Um, and just wanted to thank you guys for having me on and giving me the opportunity and to, to, to near for, for pulling this together. Uh, it's always fun to kind of talk about this stuff. Um, and, uh, that, that's about it for me. Yeah. Mike thoroughly enjoyed having you on. We're glad to have you, uh, in our network now that we can call upon you and, and hopefully bring you back for a, uh, for a second, uh, a second take on all of this. So we hope you have a wonderful weekend. And again, we really appreciate you taking time to do this. Thanks all right, so same, much, Michael. Same to you all. You've got a new listener for sure. Thanks, Bill. Bye-bye. All right, Nir. Now, you filed, or you at least posted recently about this DAO uh, patent filing with, a, with the word DAO in it. And that was an interesting innovation. That's the first of its kind. What, what did you see as being very innovative about that spin with respect to patenting something with a DAO in its name? Yeah, oh, I appreciate that, Carlo. Yeah, that that was a trademark registration. Um, so just relating to the trademark blocks. Oh, registry. my bad. No, no, no all, all good, all good. And this is, and you know, I just wanted to make a comment. I'm so happy. And by the way, if I should be calling you Dr. Yvonne, please let me know. But to have I on stage, I think is is really great. We got I and Examiner who are are both. Uh, non-attorneys, but play really integral roles in the patent process that I think most people, you know, don't even realize. Um, so I did, I did a little deep digging. I hope he doesn't mind me uh, pointing it out, but I think it's such a privilege. He is a, a patent agent at Nixon Peabody um, and where he is admitted to practice at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that. I know your background's in electrical engineering, um, but that's it would be really great to get that inside. Uh, thank, thanks so much, Nira. Um, I Actually, I just became an attorney. <laughs> so, so things are a little thanks. bit different. Update the website. Cool. 
Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I took, you, you don't, you don't have to call me doctor. Uh, just call me Edong. Edong is fine. It's not, uh, it's not a, not a big deal at all. Um, but my, my background is in electrical engineering. Um, I did engineering throughout, uh, and once I was done with my PhD, I did a postdoc, uh, focusing mostly on analog circuits. And so technics, I guess technically my background is uh, circuits, microsystems, and um, that's, that's sort of been my bread and butter. And then you finished your postdoc and went back to law school? And, and then I finished my postdoc and decided I wanted to do something very, very different from the academic world. And so I joined a law firm and I became a patent agent, really liked it. And then I decided to do law school part-time. <laughs> now I'm done with it and I do need to get the website updated. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not on me right now, but yeah, I, it will. Have yeah. you seen in your practice an increase or a trend or anything worth noting around blockchain, around smart contracts? more specifically um or is it is it is there is there something interesting there uh i've seen a lot more applications being filed with the moniker blockchain um that's i'm guessing because it's some it's the hot new thing and most companies want to um claim something in the space uh sometimes uh sometimes it it really depends on why a um, an entity gets a patent. It could be that they don't really want to enforce the patent. It could be a play to um, increase the value of their company in order to uh, have a higher valuation for selling later on. So it really comes down to what they're trying to do with it. Uh, Can you explain more of those examples that are not as straightforward to some, to, to, to some folks? What are the strategic plays for grasping this IP um, you said in valuations and other, other examples? Okay. Uh, so typically when let's, let's say when a company wants to be bought out, um, the, the buyer will look at the different assets of, the company and it's 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 easier to um evaluate like for example like how many cars the company it's it's easier to put uh, monetary values on those but when it comes to intellectual property with patents sometimes it's all right with with patents like coverage can be very very narrow but if you have multiple patents in the same area it it increases the value of your entire portfolio. The puzzles can can be stronger together. Exactly. So if so if one of them may not be strong enough, let's say one of them is overly broad and could be knocked down uh, in in an IPR or uh, or in court, then having a second one in the same area that's a little bit narrower. Um, you, you will you will see you you will see items like that. It's it kind of it's it's 
it looks like it's the same strategy that um, Unstoppable uh, is going for because they've they've gotten this first one issued and they already have a continuation which they're probably pursuing um, claims for. So the the claims that I glanced at, it looks like it's from a uh, centralized uh, entity standpoint. Uh, let's say uh, you're from a browser standpoint and the browser's doing something or uh, from a DNS registry standpoint and the registry's doing something. Um, but they might want to write, I mean, because they have the, dis- the disclosure for it, they might want to write claims for well, what if um, we want to do this from like a user standpoint and they might go for claims for that or they can say, well, maybe the claims that we have now are too broad. They may not stand. Let's pursue narrower claims. Uh, let's pursue narrower features that would make what that, that would make the overall portfolio stronger. Question for you. Oh, I'm sorry, Mo. Just a quick question because I think it's an interesting thing to bring up at this point. I know that in application filings, you have to have an intent to want to actually use the technology. So when you're talking about patenting things to sort of increase the valuation of the company, where do you draw that line between that being a genuine interest in pursuing the technology and just sort of almost like a trolling mechanism to just sort of lock up the technology? How does that, how does that balance in your, in your world when you're evaluating uh, I'm not entirely sure that you really have to have an intent to use it. Um, you could have in patents, <laughs> Carla. I think in patents again. I'm, I think I'm on the right page here when it comes to this because if I understand it correctly, when you submit that patent application, you can't really squat on that invention, right? You can. You can. You can, you can Mo. Okay. No, you can't. And it's a big strategy too. So interesting. So I just want to note that we've beaten up on the patent office. I want to take a segment to beat up on some of the attorneys uh, in the room <laughs> um, because because it's look this is a two way street, right? It's we're not filing these applications, we're not submitting these claims. It's these attorneys that are that are submitting these claims, right? And you know they they like uh like Ebong you know said you know they filed uh, application they either get a really narrow patent so they file a continuation for for broader stuff maybe they got the first application as a broad patent they file a continuation for the narrow stuff maybe they forgot something so they file a continuation in part and it just never stops just over and over and over again and so once you get one allowable subject matter you know some language they'll file a continuation with the same language but like say it's a b and d and i allowed it for d they're going to file a continuation with a b d because d was the allowable subject matter taken out c you know and so i'll have to say well is a b and d obvious or is that anticipated is there another reference that didn't think of c but thought about a b and d it kind of starts over another trick that i see is you know you'll file the same application five times the same claims and it goes to five different examiners and maybe one examiner is having a worse day than another examiner right and 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 as soon as one they they smell the weakness on one examiner they'll they'll abandon the other applications and they'll stick with that person you know so uh, again you know oh also i want to note that attorneys aren't really nice in their responses either you know they disagree with everything there is you could tell them water is blue and they'll say 
applicant respectfully disagrees, but for the sake of compact prosecution, we've amended the claims. And it's like, we all know water is blue. So again, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a tug of war between the office and attorneys. We love our general denials. This is so informative because clearly I am not well steeped in trademark law here, and I'm just trying to understand this. So I really, really am enjoying learning this. Uh, Gary, you've got your hand up. Uh, anything you want to add to the conversation? Uh, well, I, you know, wherever, wherever the conversation goes, it goes. And we could talk about it now. Or we could talk about it later. One, one of the questions that I, I would like us to touch upon is that uh, what's happening in a lot of these cases is that you have well-organized, um, seasoned managers who have the funds to do this work with the lawyers. Uh, how do we or what is what is existing or how do we create some sort of system for the builders who are building so they can preemptively patent their own stuff and then <clears throat> you know because right now they're creating stuff it's sort of open source and they think that's good enough but if these patents are are being created anyways to sort of go around that then uh how do how do we help uh decentralize the process for people to pre-patent their own stuff to do what so you're proposing doing. you're proposing like an out-of-the-box patent sort of a package that the builders in the space can use and i'm glad we're siloing trademark patent i i, I accidentally intermixed those terms and i apologize for that i want to stay on track with patents but gary that's an amazing question because you're trying to find i guess sort of the consumer-based streamlined sort of a patent approach to this is that something that's even possible for the lawyers and the examiner in the house so I just, I just definitely want to touch on something, um, Gary. Great, great question and and point. Honestly, the, but something that uh, Examiner Mo was mentioning. I just, just from a strategy standpoint, you know, you only have patent rights for a set amount of time, right? So you only have this period of exclusivity. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, and so when you hear about some of these issues about refiling, et cetera, a lot of that is. Um, for strategy reasons, for trying to extend the life of certain things. Um, and, and I do have to preface, I am not a patent attorney. Um, I've done some licensing and some litigation, uh, but I my trademarks and copyrights more my bread and butter, but I'm super fascinated uh, by all of this. And Gary, there is, if you go to the pin tweet, the second one, I'm going to find it. Um I, I think that conversation about blockchain tech being open or proprietary and what Mike was really talking about with uh, open source and the ability to build upon open source and finding aspects that are, that are patentable, it's it's tough because you really do need to work with an attorney, not just not just any attorney and not just any patent attorney, to be completely frank, but an attorney that really understands um, these issues that are relatively unique to to blockchain, I think. Um, they've been around for a bit. It was my introduction to blockchain technology around like 2017, 2018, something like that. Um, but there are these networks like Open Crypto. I, I did include that. It's under number, number four there. Uh, Open Innovation Network, where... Um, and I see your hand up, sorry, maybe you want to mention then um, from your perspective on cross-licensing and kind of using, obtaining patents from a defensive perspective. I think that can really help answer a lot of that. When, when are people going to start using ChatGPT to write their patent applications, Gary? Uh, they're 
going to do that immediately if they're not, they're not already already doing that, I would I would imagine. Right. But I'm, I'm just thinking, I mean, there's a little bit more than that, right? Because there, there right. probably is a little bit of guidance. I, I really liked what Nier said, how which is echoing what other people are saying, that it really takes a specialized uh, uh, patent attorney who not only understands the, the patent stuff and understands the, the blockchain tech sort of stuff. But how do we find a couple of those people? And then how do we uh, circle them in a DAO, a pre-existing DAO or otherwise, and how do we have them do an assessment of open source projects or, or open source DAOs or, or the like? And how do we preemptively uh, patent stuff like we're a evil patent troll, but we do it for the like a Robin Hood style or maybe not, maybe not Robin Hood style. But you know what I'm saying? Just to pre- prevent the, the patent trolls that are taking good stuff. Right. And then and because then, like, again, I, my, my viewpoint, like my feeling is that developers, if they go, oh, I'm going to make this thing, it's going to be open source. And it's going to be good for everybody forever. And, and obviously, that's not the case because of the opportunity in the system. And so, how do we how do we how do we counter that? How do we counter the situation I and bring Gary, more patent power to individuals in, in DAOs? I think I think one thing to do specifically in this time and place with like your network and your your power and the things that you talk about, like. I don't know if it needs to be this DAO decentralized solution right now may lean toward coordination between these individuals who are building and then a pool of resources and then build your dream team and then like create a system as opposed to like there, there almost isn't a layer two solution. Like we, we can't create a rubric that will just simplify this whole thing it's almost like let's capture what we can and pool and coordinate as opposed to a, a fix. But I hear everything you're saying, and, and that's why I wanted to, I was excited about this conversation that you joined. Yeah, I, I don't care if it's a DAO. When I, when I say DAO, I just mean um, taking the power of organizing plus the power of money so that there could be a organizing and then money to pay the, the trademark lawyers because, you know, people don't Yeah, because, in, because the cost for one it's like remodeling your house and building it like like the cost for a one off is relatively significant based uh, you know but a coordinated effort where the sum is more valuable than the parts as others on stage have said like that's that's i don't know if it was mike or, or others but like that's where i would go so i'm always willing to talk offline and, I, and we can get it in the hands of of really really smart people but it's it's a it's a monumental task that that takes takes actual real effort versus a negative negative trade-off right because like again um like uh it's yeah it's twenty thousand dollars but if someone patents ethereum right after ethereum is like open source like you know what what, what's that yeah there are there are circumstances where the whole where the trade-off is is super valuable that's why i think coordination among the many gets the game theory where it makes perfect sense. But And I want to jump on that, Jenko, because I Go think ahead. that's a big takeaway from the conversation we've had today. I, I echo what Nir is saying, that it is a highly complex area of law. You know, I'm a criminal defense lawyer, and I have a very, very rudimentary understanding of patents. And I've learned a lot today. And what I've learned is that, yes, you need to seek out counsel who understand the tactical and the strategic aspects of how you apply. Mo has sort of given the examiner's perspective on that and the complexities of the cat and mouse game that goes on here. And I think that Gary is the big takeaway. 
it's probably not something that can be simplified into an out-of-the-box user uh, format where you can sort of do it yourself. It is a sizable lift, and I think that's what justifies the fees that you see in these patent filings. Uh, would I be fair in, in saying that, Ebong? Uh, yes, you are, you are correct there. It, and, and also, one thing that I've noticed with blockchain is a lot of the publications they're not they're pretty informal and so they're not um they're not i mean you can you can find research papers uh but for specific uh items that individuals are trying to um to patent it can it can be pretty difficult to find uh the 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 documents that the examiners are looking for and i think mo you can probably speak to this i'm I'm not sure how much the the patent office encourages uh, searching uh non-patent literature oh they train us and train us and train (laughs) us and train us on searching the mpls uh it's just you got to know where to look and like i feel like github and these things that are in the corners of the blockchain you know ecosystem that we all know about maybe they're just not being you know told to the examiners and and i'm sure i'm sure of it that the examiner who you know gets these blockchain cases they're seeing these you know maybe for the first time you know over the last year and so they've been here for years working on similar things and now they're getting stuff that isn't searchable we it's just not you can't see it and so you know and they don't know where to look so they're going to have to by default allow the application because we can't just say this is obvious because i think it is you know i have to give you proof of you know why this is not uh or you know an obvious modification so you can reject you know the claims so it's just more training, more time. I mean, this really reminds me of maybe early when uh, touch phones first came out and people were getting uh, patents for, you know, like, oh, you click this button and it'll do this. And like never before had you clicking a button done that before. And the next thing you know, people are suing major companies like Apple for like infringing on their technologies because they had a very broad patent very early on in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, it finally became relevant in the early 2000s. Amazing. I, you know, Jenko, I think as we close out this conversation on patents today, I think this is a great template for what I'd love to see happening going forward with LexLine. We collaborated with NIR, and this goes out to all the lawyers in the house. We, we got with NIR, we came up with a topic, she brought in a stellar speaker, and now we're all better for it because this is complicated stuff. And before sitting and tuning in on this show and hosting it, I wouldn't have known where to begin to refer someone to a patent lawyer, and I would not have understood the nuances. And I think as a legal community, we're so siloed in our areas of specialty, Jenko, that that it's good to have this camaraderie and this opportunity to come up and talk. So I want to, to close it out, Jenko, before I hand it to you, I want to send out that, that invitation to all the lawyers in the house that if you have ideas like this and speakers you can bring in to sort of elevate our understanding and broaden our own availability of referral network, I think this is an excellent platform to do that. So amazing conversation today, Jenko. What are your thoughts? No, I just love it. I, I love when we get to talk to Mo. He's, he's really somebody who every time we put out the bat signal just comes and, and really helps.
and uh, Gary, I, I'm, I appreciate you stepping up. I, I invited you up. You're always welcome. In fact, I'm going to track you down as just a special guest so we can have an hour to chat with you. One of the most fascinating people in, in the space. And, and Jess, thanks so much. Um, Ebong, thank you so much. I want to learn more about that practice that spans such interesting topics. Um, I'm with Carlo. I've always just referred this stuff out when I'm working in-house and stuff, but that's really, it's, it's that interdisciplinary stuff that makes for great conversations. So I, I really, I'm with you, Carlo, like let's have more friends guide some hours with us and bring in some more interesting people because Carlo and I only know so many interesting people. Dude, before you wrap up, I just want to thank y'all for, you know, hosting and giving us a platform to, to get to know each other and talk about these things. And, and it's a wild time to be alive and, and on Twitter and, and have this accessibility to such amazing players in the field. And so thank you so much, Carlo and Ray. Thank you, Jess, for letting me know about this. And Yvonne, very nice to meet you. Gary, very nice to meet you, buddy. And thank you to our guest, Mike, uh, who had to cut out, but we've thoroughly enjoyed having him on. This will be available if you want to listen back to it. And we're going to have some phenomenal clips that we'll produce and put out uh, from this show that I think are going to be very insightful for the community. Jenko, you're the best color man on the blockchain. I love doing this with you. Had so much fun today. Thank you to everyone who joined us. And stay tuned. We'll be back next week with more interesting guests and more interesting topics in the world of Web3, crypto, and blockchain law. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody.